0: Hi, my name is Tommy Allen. I'm the lead pastor of New Hope Presbyterian Church, and we are glad that you are here. This morning, I thought I would start things a little differently. We're heading into Holy Week, and typically during this virtual time together, I begin with a confession of sin. I thought I would do what amounts to a call to worship from John chapter seven. You see, in John chapter seven, Jesus is at the Feast of Passover, and during that time, there's a great pouring ceremony. Religious leaders would take water in, and they would pour it over the altar, and it would commemorate when God gave Israel water in the desert when they were dying so with all of that said hear the word of god from john chapter 7 verse 37 38 on the last day of the feast the great day jesus stood up and cried out if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink whoever believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you would come and that you would guide our time together, that you would um, open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my head and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. I'd just remind you before we start on the sermon this morning that we are worshipping in person at ten o'clock next sunday ten a m is our easter service we're only having one service, but the good news, if you haven 't seen my latest update, um, is that we can sing now. You have to wear a mask, but nonetheless, we are able to sing, so we are excited about that, and we hope you come we hope you're here so what are we looking at this morning if you are following along in the jesus storybook bible um you know that the title of today's sermon or the title of the story is the sun stops shining it's about the crucifixion of jesus it's palm sunday but we're following along with the schedule of the jesus storybook bible so in theory um the crucifixion wouldn't happen for five days but all that said let me begin by asking you um a question, as I often do. And the question is this. It was posed about almost 20 years ago. I found an article, and the subtitle of the article is this. Was Jesus a crybaby? Was he a crybaby? Think about it. So The the article came from The Stranger, which if you're familiar with Seattle, The Stranger is sort of the alternative newspaper. And really the title of the, the article was Jesus is Out. And then it asks, was Jesus a crybaby? Let me read you the first paragraph to give you some sense of that. So the writer says this, Tricia Reddy says, "'I have seen the American Messiah, "'and he has teeth like a horse, giant picket fence teeth. "'His hair is combed in the shape of a shining helmet. No strand is out of place. He wears a dark suit and a starched white shirt. When he preaches, people scream and are lifted up. They leap from their seats and shake their fists in the air. In this way, the Messiah's disciples demonstrate one of the top virtues of American spirituality, exuberance. The Messiah is Anthony Robbins, the late night infomercial king. What? you see what basically the article does is it compares Jesus to Anthony Robbins who's you know a motivational guru and the question really that it raises is um, why would you follow a crucified rabbi who tells you you're not good enough to save yourself when you could be following you, you could have a cheerleader instead who tells you not only are you good enough but you're smart enough and doggone it people like you and if you feel like you need a savior you're your own savior So which one do you need? Which one is better? Today, I hope I'm going to persuade you that the crucified rabbi is the better savior than the cheerleader. We're going to be looking specifically at John chapter 19. If you follow along in the Storybook Bible, there's several places where the crucifixion in all the Gospels it's depicted. And today we're going to be focusing in, we're going to be zeroing in on John chapter 19. So let me read that to you, at least the part we're going to be looking at, starting at verse 17. So if you you know the story, right? Jesus is, is um, being crucified and here's what it says. It says, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on each side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother, the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So what's happening uh, to to this point? Imagine this. We're going to look at three things. The three things we're going to talk about today basically is a hope dashed, a thirsty Savior, and then finally we're going to talk about a scripture fulfilled. So, a hope dashed, a thirsty savior, and a scripture fulfilled. What do I mean by a hope dashed? Well, I want you to think about this. Imagine you're one of Jesus' earlier followers. Maybe you're Peter, James, or John. And you've been following Jesus for three years now. And up to this point, it's been nothing but winning. Really? I mean, I mean, like so much winning, you're getting tired of winning. So Jesus, how did the, what do I mean by that? It's like, you, so you're following Jesus. Not only are you getting great teaching along the way, but you're seeing Jesus actually uh, heal the, the deaf and make them hear and make the lame to walk and make the mute to speak and make the blind to see. You've even seen him raise the dead. And then even to, to add a little bit more mustard on it, he actually sticks it to the man. Right, the religious leaders who maybe look down on you your whole life. Jesus is constantly undermining them, and Jesus is constantly pointing out their self-righteousness and actually their own need for a savior. And they don't like it one bit. You've also maybe you're Peter, James, and John. You saw the transfiguration. You saw Jesus sort of glowing and you heard God speak from the clouds. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So you heard all that and all of that culminates in Palm Sunday. Remember what happened on Palm Sunday. Let me read that to you from Matthew chapter 21. It says, they brought in the donkey and the colt and put him on the Put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds then went before him, and that followed him were shouting, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest!" And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, "Who is this?" And the crowd said, "This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee." So Jesus, your Savior, your friend, the one with whom you are best buds is just on top of the world he is has not only done winning he's not only healed he's not only stuck into the man he's not only done everything but he has ridden into jerusalem the holy city and people are waving palms they're putting their cloaks down basically they're proclaiming him king it doesn't get much better than that until a few days later Right. So Thursday night, you know, here you are and things start taking a dark turn. You wonder. So you have Passover with Jesus. That wouldn't have been uncommon to celebrate the Passover meal. But at some point, he actually undresses and puts a towel around his waist and he begins to wash your feet. And he seems really grim. And a short time after that, one of your friends, Judas, betrays Judas. Jesus to the religious leaders. The religious leaders come and arrest Jesus. They take Jesus and turn him over to Pilate, and Pilate has him beaten for no good reason, and scourged, and then ultimately crucified. Hope's dashed, right? You'd like, whoa, 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 how did this all go south so so quickly? It reminds me of the end of National Velvet. Have you ever seen the movie National Velvet with Elizabeth Taylor and Mickey Rooney? It's an old movie. But nonetheless, remember, she's a little girl. She's about 12 and Mickey Rooney and they have this horse, the Pied, and she just loves the horse and they train the horse to race in the Grand Nationals. They're sure it can win, but they can't find a jockey. And so sweet little girl, Elizabeth Taylor, dresses up like a jockey, and she races the pie. And, you know, and it's like any movie with a horse race. You know, you're biting your fingernails. Is she going to win? Is she going to win? And right at the end of the movie, she pulls it out. Her horse crosses the finish line, and she wins, and the crowd is just erupting, and they're going crazy. And you're home. You're erupting. You got your hands up. Your family is shouting. And then, within a moment, she falls off the horse. She's just exhausted and falls off. Hope's dashed. I mean, when you're watching the movie, you're like, whoa, 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 what happened? Imagine how you would have felt following Jesus for three years, and then suddenly he is crucified. He's he's, he's crucified before you. Your hopes would have been dashed. This must have been how the disciples felt. We know that they felt discouraged. We know that they didn't really understand what was going on. And then now that he's crucified, what are they to make of these things that he is saying? In other words, from the cross... Jesus speaks seven times. And he says seven different words. Some of them make more sense than others, if, especially if you don't understand the context. right? So the first thing he says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, he's talking about the people who have crucified him. They're just following orders, I guess. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. He says to the thief on the cross at some point, He says, Today you will be with me in paradise. We read earlier where he says to his mother, Married woman, behold thy son about John. And to John, he says, behold your mother. And John takes her into his home from that day forward. In the fourth one, he says, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you're one of the disciples and saying, I wonder if this is going to turn out good. And you hear Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That doesn't sound really good to be honest with you. The fifth thing he says is I thirst. The sixth thing is it is finished." And then the last thing he says is, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now, today I want to focus on the least surprising of those words, but maybe what might be the most profound of those words. And that's where he said, I thirst. And in fact, in the Greek, it's just one word. He, it just says, I thirst, right? And so the Question is, why is he thirsty? And that leads us to point number two, a thirsty savior. So the hopes are dashed. Jesus is talking from the cross and he says, I thirst. And what are we to make of a thirsty savior? What are we to make of that word? Why would he say that? Now on one hand, um, this word from the cross, this phrase, I thirst, makes the most sense of all of them. At least it makes the most common sense. It's the most obvious thing you would have actually expected him to say. Now, why is that? Well, probably because he's thirsty, <laughs> right? Remember, he, when he was taken, he was beaten and then he was scourged. And to be scourged would have been for them to take a whip, a cat of nine tails with pieces of glass or bone in it, and he would have received 39 lashes until his back was laid open. There would have been a lot of blood. Remember, he had a crown of thorns, which also would have caused bleeding. And of course, having his hands and feet nailed to the cross, he would have lost a lot of blood that day. He might have had a fever. Um, he also, it might have been hot outside. So it would be completely obvious if he was thirsty. Okay, we get it. He's lost blood. It's hot. It's miserable. Anyone would be thirsty in that situation. And here's the thing. Well, no one would have been surprised by that. By him saying, I thirst, they might, however, have found it ironic. In other words, while it's not surprising to hear him say, I thirst, it is ironic to hear him say, I thirst. And that is because of what Jesus did in John chapter seven earlier. That's what I read on the call to worship that Jesus came to the feast of tabernacles which was a great jewish feast and during that time they had this pouring festival where the religious leaders would take great pots of water down the streets of Jerusalem and they would pour them on the altar to commemorate Jesus or to to commemorate God's delivering them in the wilderness specifically by giving them water and now think of what Jesus must have seemed like at the moment this sort of crackpot, this nut in the eyes of many people. It says that it divided the people, him saying that. He stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And I'll make from him a, a river of water flow from him. So what is Jesus saying at the Feast of Tabernacles earlier? Basically, he's saying the same God who delivered you in the wilderness the same god who gave you living water in the wilderness is standing before you right now to deliver you and to give you living water right coo-coo, coo-coo. that's what some people would have thought of jesus especially now i wonder if anyone remembered they're looking at him and he says i thirst and they're like isn't this the same guy who said he was going to give us something to drink?" How do we reconcile the irony of that statement and the fact that Jesus says, I thirst? Is one of them not true. And the way we do that, the way we answer that, that sort of irony is with the scripture fulfilled. In other words, that's our third point, a scripture fulfilled. Jesus has said, anyone who's thirsty, come unto me and I will give you living water. And he also says, I thirst. How do we reconcile those? Well, notice, let me read it to you in verse 28. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all now was finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say, or notice what John doesn't say about Jesus. John doesn't say, Jesus was thirsty, so he asked for a drink. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Jesus was really dying for something to drink, and so he said, I thirst. Doesn't say that. It says that Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he had done everything required to deliver his people. Then it says, to fulfill the scripture said, I thirst. That's the key to understanding what's going on here. That the reason Jesus says, I thirst, is, was in order to fulfill the scripture, not necessarily, although he probably was, thirsty. So how do we explain that? What's going on here? The way we understand it, I think, is by looking at Exodus chapter 17. Something happens in Exodus chapter 17 that is pretty amazing. And let me read to you Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. So if you remember at this point, Israel has, the the exodus has just happened. Israel is rejoicing as they leave Egypt, but in very short order, you know, they cross the Red Sea and almost as soon as that's over, they begin to complain because there's no water. They're in the the wilderness and they begin to complain about that. And they begin to basically, they're, they're just full of unbelief. Remember the gospel to Israel was that God would deliver them from Egypt, from their bondage into the promised land. And where their failure of belief happened was they believed that God had delivered them because it had happened. But what they failed to believe was that God was going to finish the job. And so they immediately started to complain. They immediately started to complain about water. And God is going to punish their sin. He's he's going to deal with that complaining here. So verse 7 chapter 17 verse 1 of Exodus says all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim but there was no water for the people to drink therefore the people quarrelled with Moses and said give us water to drink and Moses said to them why do you quarrel with me why do you test the Lord but the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said why do you bring us out of, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst And Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff, with which I struck the Nile, and go, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord not? So what's going on in this passage? Basically, they are complaining, and God hears their complaining, and he is frustrated by it. He's angry at their complaining. And so Moses is at the end of his rope. He says, "His people are ready to stone me. What should I do? And so God basically says, okay, here's the deal. I want you, uh, we're going to set up this court scene. Pass before the people. I want them to see what's happening. I want you to take the elders with you. And I want you to take in your hand, the staff with which I struck the Nile. Remember that staff that Moses has—that is the rod of judgment. That's the staff with which Pharaoh was judged. That's he struck the Nile. He everything when Moses is judging on behalf of God, he uses that staff. And so you have to imagine the people and the elders when they hear this—that God wants us to go out in the woods and with the elders and take the staff that someone is being taken to the woodshed. Something bad is going to happen. And so he tells them to do that. But then he says something that is completely out of character, especially. With what most people understand or think about the Old Testament. Because God says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. In other words, God says, We're going to set up this court scene, and judgment is going to happen, and not you, Moses, and not the elders, but I, God, will stand upon the rock, and I want you to bring the rod of judgment down upon me, who is standing on the rock. And the result of me bearing my people's, the judgment my people deserve, living water will flow from the rock and save them. Do you see the connection? That's exactly what happens at the cross. What happens at the cross of Jesus is Jesus bears the rod of judgment on our behalf. And as a result, living water flows. Jesus bears the, the, rod of judgment on our behalf and as a result we can actually drink in other words jesus becomes thirsty and we become full jesus actually bears god's judgment and we get god's pardon jesus bear, bears god's curse and we receive god's blessing when jesus says i thirst that was in order for us to be able to drink of the living water of salvation and now the question is who what does it cost you does it cost you anything to be saved? Does it cost you anything for this rabbi on the cross to give you living water, to pardon you for your sins, to forgive you, to to make you righteous in his sight? And the answer is no, it doesn't cost anything. In fact, when Jesus said, uh, if anyone come unto me and drink, he meant anyone. It doesn't matter how badly you've sinned. It doesn't matter how bad what's in your past. If you're willing to trust Jesus to cleanse you from his sin, if you're willing to believe that he became thirsty so that you could actually drink and be full and be satisfied and be cleansed of your sins, then that is free to you. He doesn't say, hey, all you good people come unto me and I will take care of you. All you people who with all the right affirmations who are good enough and are smart enough and people like you, that's who I came to save. He never says that. He says Anyone who is thirsty, come unto me, and I will give you living water. You see, that's the, the crux of the gospel. That's why we need the, the crucified rabbi and not the motivational speaker. You don't need a cheerleader. You need someone who was willing to live the life you should have lived, die the death you should have died, and to fulfill you. And you see, when you look at the cross, that's what you see and it always reminds me, if you've ever heard me preach for, for any length of time, probably around this time of year, you've heard this story, and it's when I first saw the movie Saving Private Ryan. Um, if you don't know who I am, among other things, I spent my formative adult years as a ranger in the army, and so I, it took me a long time to see Saving Private Ryan. I don't really like to watch like live-action war movies, frankly, and I finally went to see it, and you remember the movie, it's about rangers, um, who are sent on a mission to rescue Private Ryan. Matt Damon plays Private Ryan. Tom Hanks is the captain of the Rangers. And they have to go through enemy territory and there's all these skirmishes and they fight and they finally find Private Ryan. And they say, come on, we have to go because his mother has lost other sons and the army is trying to do her a favor. And he says, I can't leave. I can't leave my unit here. Without, I I can't leave him here knowing that they might have died and I didn't fight with them. And so, of course, the rangers say, we will stay and fight with you. And then we will take you home after. And so they fight. There's a great big battle. And everyone dies almost except Private Ryan. And Tom Hanks, as he is getting ready to die, um, calls Private Ryan over. And he says something to him that had everyone in the theater crying because they were so sad. And it had me crying because i was so angry. What did he say to Ryan that could be so offensive, at least to my ears. You see, Ryan leans down and Tom Hanks says, his character says, earn this, earn this. And it fast forward to Ryan as an old man and he, he has this look on his face like he doesn't know if he's really done enough to earn the, what Tom Hanks has done for him. And that made me so furious because if Tom Hanks was a real ranger, he wouldn't have said, earn this. He would have said, sua Suponte, Ryan. Suesponte means, "I volunteered for this." That's been the Ranger motto since the French and Indian War. I volunteer for this. Ryan, you don't have to earn this. This is free of charge. I freely give myself for you. I chose this. That's what he would have been saying to him had it been accurate. Now, what's that have to do with the cross? You see, a lot of times we look at the cross and what we hear when Jesus speaks, instead of hearing him say, it is finished, or instead of hearing him say, uh, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or instead of hearing him say, I thirst, what we hear instead is, earn this. And the whole point of the cross is that you can't earn it, that Jesus has earned it on your behalf. And so when you look at the cross, instead of hearing Jesus say, earn this, what you hear him say, if I could be... uh, generous is the sua sponte. I chose this. I did this for you. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray now that you would come and that you would just uh, work this truth into our heart. So often um, we try to earn our salvation. So often we don't enjoy um, what it means to be a Christian. And yet all of that is that at the cross of Jesus. We realize that he has done everything on our behalf. And I pray that you would enable us to see that. If there are people watching this who who have not embraced Jesus, I pray that they even now would have their eyes open and they would embrace Jesus freely offered. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And amen. Well, at this point in the service, um, even in live services, we are not taking an offertory yet because of all the COVID stuff. Um, We encourage people to give digitally. And so if you look below in the description, you can find information about that. If you're interested in giving digitally, many of you who are watching do give digitally and uh, physically often. And so thank you for that. Thank you for supporting our ministry. And so I thought it would end today with the Heidelberg Catechism, I believe, question 37. And question 37 says this, it asks, what do you understand by the word suffered? And it's talking about the Apostles' Creed. Remember, it says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And answers answer is this, that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace and grace righteousness, and eternal life. Amen and amen. Again, we're meeting in person. We'd love to have you. Let me send you from this virtual space with God's blessing saying that I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate you from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. Have a great week.